Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hello, friends and neighbors. We're back again on the Bill Press Pod this Friday morning, July 30, around 8.30 a.m. in Washington, D.C., for our weekly roundtable. Looking back on the big news of the week with three of Washington's top political reporters. And what a week it's been. Things uh, were actually happening in Washington this week. We even saw something called legislating. We haven't seen in a long time. In no particular order, we experienced the first hearing of the January 6th Select Committee with dramatic emotional testimony from four police officers. Renewal of the mask mandate in the House of Representatives met, shall we say, with a mixed reaction. A vaccination mandate in effect for all federal employees. And believe it or not, 67 senators, 50 Democrats and 17 Republicans voting to move forward to debate a $1 trillion infrastructure bill. What's the big takeaway from all of it? Well, let's find out from today's panel. Eliza Collins, political politics reporter for The Hill for The Wall Street Journal. Hello, Eliza. Hi there. Hi. Igor Babish, also on the Hill, senior politics reporter at HuffPost. Hello, Igor. Hello. And Hunter Walker, uh, he's everywhere, founder and reporter <laughs> of the new politics newsletter, TheUprising.info. Hello, Hunter. Hey, Bill. How are you? Okay, so let's start with the president's big announcement yesterday about federal employees upping the ante on getting vaccinated here, President Biden in the East Room. Look, this is not about red states and blue states. It's literally about life and death. It's about life and death. That's what it's about. Okay, he says two million federal employees have to be vaccinated or wear a mask, be tested maybe every week or more frequently, and their travel uh, curtailed. Uh, but it's not a mandate. Eliza, when is a mandate not a mandate? It's pretty close to a mandate. Um, you know, I think they are telling people what to do here. There are some options, I guess, if you don't want to be vaccinated, but you have to wear a mask and get tested. So it seems pretty close to me. I think the word mandate the White House is trying to avoid, because that's obviously not a politically popular word, but Certainly, Republicans and opponents of Biden are using the word mandate when they are referring to this. Right. Uh, and even um, we heard this week, uh, Igor, that Mitch McConnell is using some of his campaign money on ads in Kentucky, advising people, encouraging people to get vaccinated. Uh, and so is a Republican Governor Kay Ivey in Alabama. Here she is asked by a reporter this week. What is it going to take to get people to get shots in August? I don't know. You tell me. 
folks supposed to have common sense. But it's time for, to start blaming the unvaccinated folks, not the regular folks. It's the unvaccinated folks that are letting us down. So, Igor, is this a represent a shift on the part of the Republican Party? <laughs> well, I guess I guess you could say uh, better late than never uh, in most of these cases. I mean, look, McConnell has been one of the most outspoken guys on this. Of course, he had polio as a child, and his message has always been go get a vaccine, you know, unqualified. But a lot of his, his members, people like Ron Johnson of Wisconsin, are spreading misinformation about the vaccine, and they're highlighting all these all these uh, false things about it. And um, it's a problem in their party, and um, I, I think you're seeing a consequence of that now. Uh, the all these uh, the the high case numbers in in red states and Trump country, um, and and as a result, you're seeing uh, people like KIV and uh, Tommy Tuberville uh, also speaking out, telling people go get a vaccine, don't don't die. Um, so you know we're glad we're glad to see it, but uh, uh, it took a while. Yeah, uh, and we're also seeing cities and counties starting to uh, shut down again, particularly on the mask mandates in California here in District of Columbia. And Hunter, you wrote a great New Yorker piece about Bill De Blasio um, doing a little reversal uh, up in New York. I, I mean, it's sort of like he wants the city to reopen, but at the same time, he wants to go back to uh, the mask mandate. Yeah, he's been a big cheerleader for reopening, um, but at the same time, he has tried to, you know, push max man mask mandates, um, but they haven't really gone as far as they could. I mean, when he when he pushed for mask mandates in the city workforce, you know, it included a loophole that you could also COVID test. Um, so he's really trying a bit to have it both ways. And I think part of that is, you know, as, as America has seen, Eric Adams is coming in in New York. De Blasio's kind of got an eye to his legacy. And he was really enjoying being kind of a cheerleader for the reopening of the city. He actually told me it's been a quote unquote beautiful moment that's made him euphoric. And now Delta is really complicating that. Uh, and are you a source of tickets for the great big concert, uh, Hunter? And <laughs> I am not. Um, they actually just um, announced a, a little bit of a new restriction on that, which is that everyone is going to have to be vaccinated. So that means it's only open to kids under 12. So I would say your first source of tickets for that thing is Pfizer. But <laughs> but they've got a hell of a lineup uh, in terms of talent for that uh, for that concert. I mean, they've got Rob Thomas and Carlos Santana. So unquestionably, <laughs> it's a hot one. <laughs> oh, oh. No, that was that was that was not smooth. <laughs> oh no, Igor. <laughs> well, uh, speaking of mask mandates, uh, Igor, w what's going on in the House of Representatives uh, with the people uh, Republicans refusing to wear masks on the floor? Oh, it's a it's been a circus. Uh, it's been an uh, an S show, if I can if I can say that. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> So, you know, the attending physician on the Hill had made this recommendation to both House and the Senate, and Pelosi had actually gone gone forward as far as to say, you know, everybody has to wear a mask on the floor of the House and uh, in all the House side Capitol buildings and the House hallways. So basically now you have this kind of weird dividing line between the House and the Senate where the Senate has not put in place a mask order, whereas the House has and this week we saw, you know, dozens of these House Republicans, hard right House Republicans, um, 
put on a stunt essentially. And, uh, you know, uh, it looked like a scene out of Braveheart, you know, people shouting, <laughs> uh, freedom, uh, and, uh, going over to the Senate side to make this grand gesture that, you know, here we have freedom but in the house. We don't. And that Nancy Pelosi is a tyrannical uh, authoritarian, uh, to quote, uh, the top house Republican. Uh, so how do they enforce this in the House, uh, Eliza? Are they going to arrest these members or what? Or find so they, them? Or? They find them right now. And I think your first offense is $500. After that, it's $2,500. Um, the Capitol Police came out with a statement yesterday basically saying no one should be arrested over this, but people will be escorted out. You know, I see a lot of people not wearing masks when I'm still on the House side. I'm not sure how many of them are getting fined, they get fined on the House floor. But there was something yesterday, too, where dozens of Republican staffers in a House office building, which is still considered the Capitol complex, so still under the same rules, basically had a party in the hallway. They were playing beer pong. They were out and about without masks on. Um, so, you know, I don't think everyone is getting fined. Members are getting fined at this point. But it's a really confusing and sort of impossible situation, to be honest, because to Igor's point, the Senate has these like recommendations. The House has the rules and it's the same building. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. Uh, I, I was going to ask you about the staffers. I didn't know whether the mask uh, a mandate applied to staffers in House office buildings. Does it? It does apply to everyone, but Igor, you can correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think staffers can be fined. That's members, and that's for going on the floor without a mask on. But members are choosing to be fined, right? Especially for some of these members, it's a it's an issue that can really rally up their base, and maybe they're making the calculation that they can raise more money than the fines are. But these are pretty hefty fines. Uh, yeah, twenty five hundred bucks if that for that second fine and and on. Uh, meanwhile, Hunter, the um, speaker, not the speaker, I'm sorry, but the Republican leader of the House um, seems to be Kevin McCarthy supporting those who refuse to wear a mask. Uh, Nancy Pelosi, as we know, this week had a <laughs> a ripe word to use for Kevin McCarthy, <laughs> uh, calling him a moron. Um, such a moron. He And when she was asked by a reporter, she didn't really back down. Here she is. Speaker, um, just to clarify something from earlier, um, is Kevin McCarthy a moron? And if so, why? To say uh, that wearing a mask is not based on science, I think, is, is not wise. And that was my comment. And that's all I'm going to say about that. Hunter, this gets it down to a level we haven't necessarily seen before. <laughs> I just, I mean, first off, I don't know who that was, but I really appreciate the reporter and how earnestly they asked that question. <laughs> that was that was a very, very valiant effort. Um, but, you know, one thing that I found very, very interesting in all of this is that the um, Republican Senate contingent is fully vaccinated. So this, you know, has definitely been politicized. Um, but... Even with that, uh, this is really only a feature of certain Republican House members that are kind of wanting to, you know, aggressively be COVID denialist. And I mean, I I don't know what to say about it. I mean, as we all, you know, the, the trick with Delta, right? Like I, I was somebody who was so careful uh, in the early days of this pandemic. Um, 
And, and I do, you know, it's exhausting to kind of go back into quarantine measures now, even mm, as I intellectually yeah. realize it. But out of all of those, I mean, putting a little mask on is like, you know, the, the least of it. And, and, you know, if there's, there's a fairly strong odd of breakout infection out there, not, not strong odds, but a realistic possibility. And certainly if you're unvaccinated, it's very dangerous. Why not just put on a mask? I don't get it. I, I can't relate to this at all. All right, we have Tuck, uh, Hunter Walker there on <laughs> on the side of those of Kay Ivey and Joe Biden and Mitch McConnell urging wearing a ma- and Nancy Pelosi urging wearing a mask. Meanwhile, um, to a lot of people's surprise, um, it looks like there this may be known as Infrastructure Week. <laughs> At least sixty-seven senators voted. Uh, to move forward to debate on the $1 trillion infrastructure bill. So, Eliza, is this a done deal? It is not a done deal, but it's a big step. I mean, it is so rare for bipartisanship to happen, A, and for big packages to move, especially in a bipartisan way. You made the joke about it finally being infrastructure week. There were many weeks in the Trump era that (laughs) the White House wanted to be infrastructure week, and they just weren't able to do so. So it's a big step. They basically voted to start the process. But now there's debate, there's amendments, and that's just to get it through the Senate. And there are some progressives in the Senate and certainly in the House who say they'll only vote for this bipartisan package, which is a slimmed down, basically just hard infrastructure package, if they get to vote on a much larger package, $3.5 trillion, on a whole bunch of Democratic priorities that they're basically calling human infrastructure. So child care, paid family leave, expansion of Medicare. And those are tied together, especially in the House. Pelosi said she'll only bring them up together. So basically, for one to pass, the other has to pass. And we've got tight margins and a whole bunch of legislating that has to happen before both can get passed. But I think it was a very significant step this week. But, uh, Igor, this bill hasn't even been written yet, has it? I mean, in legislative language. No, we're, we're still actually waiting for bill text, which is why um, uh, basically the wheels can fall off at any, any moment. Uh, both on this bill and the the three and a half trillion uh, reconciliation package, the the spending bill that Democrats want to pass on their own, um, and as Eliza said, you know Democrats view these two bills as tied to one another, and uh, there's a lot of a lot of angst, um, you know, a lot of uh, ill feelings uh, among both progressives in the House and the Senate, uh, seeing these these bills pass, these bills move now. You've got, you know, moderates in the Senate like Kirsten Cinema saying um, that they're not comfortable with a three and a half trillion price tag. They want to reduce it. Uh, people in the House saying that's that's uh, that's not the way we should do things. We need a, a bolder package. So I don't think um, the ink is quite dry on this thing yet. Uh, were you surprised, uh, Igor, to see Mitch McConnell vote for it? Uh, and do you think he'll stick with it? I was surprised, um, you know. <laughs> yeah, uh, his his uh, his strategy, both under this president and uh, under the previous Democratic president, has been to deny uh, uh, deny them wins, essentially. Uh, yeah, to try to show voters that you know they can't they can't govern and and uh, try to seize back power. So it was it was striking um, to see him vote for this thing, especially since so many of his members voted against it. 
Uh, and Hunter, what surprised me about this too was that Donald Trump from uh, Bedminster, New Jersey, said rotten deal. Don't don't do this. Don't give Biden a win on this. And then seventeen Republicans, including Mitch McConnell, voted for it anyway. What does that tell us, if anything? Well, let's not forget that. Uh when he was president, Trump wanted to pass an infrastructure deal with a lot of spending. So I think, you know, his frustration here was not in spending. It was not in finally yeah. making it infrastructure week, which is a term coined during his administration. It was in Biden getting a win and Biden getting a win. He seemed unable to get with his own party. Right. Uh, but does it show that maybe his influence on the party is waning a little bit? I think Starting. that as well as this this race we just saw in Texas, you know, um, I was mm -hmm. talking to someone yesterday who were who was saying that these things are, you know, movements that might start to give, you know, some of these people who have stayed very loyal to Trump while kind of politically watching their back a little bit of newfound courage. Right. Uh, so uh, all of you have referenced uh, the the follow up bill the $3.5 trillion human infrastructure bill. Uh, Eliza, how, how are they going to get this? How can they get this passed? Well, they need every senator on board. Um, Democratic leadership, including... Every, every Democratic senator. Right. Every Democratic senator, yes, sorry. Yeah. Um, they, Democratic leadership and basically budget committee leadership, so including Bernie Sanders and Mark Warner, so the two ideological wings of the party, have all agreed to this $3.5 trillion number. Uh, Sanders says he came down as a compromise. Warner says he went up. Um, it's been endorsed by leadership <laughs> and the White House. That doesn't mean all 50 senators are on board. And we saw this, I think, on Wednesday when Kirsten Sinema, um, who is sort of the mansion mold, gone against the party, always urging bipartisanship, announced right when the infrastructure deal was announced um, that she had a problem with the $3.5 trillion number. So she said the word cost. And so some Democrats are hoping that with offset, she'll be OK there. She did not specify. But Democrats do have a problem. Both her and Manchin have expressed concern about the cost. And progressives say that's a compromise for them. So they'll have to figure out a way to get all 50 senators to back this bill. And like the infrastructure bill, it's not yet drafted. It's even further back than that, because there's not even really a framework, just a list of priorities they want to see included. Uh, and Igor, the president yesterday said he wanted immigration reform as part of this uh, human infrastructure bill as well. So um, I guess that further complicates it, right? It does. Um, and, I, you know, this this meeting yesterday at the White House with uh, some of the biggest uh, stakeholders and immigration activists, Democratic lawmakers who have been pushing for a pathway uh, to citizenship for dreamers. Um, really came at, at the behest of uh, activists who want to see this this included in the reconciliation package. The problem is, is that Senate rules um, are not likely to, you know, have this thing survive in there. The parliamentarian, Senate parliamentarian is probably going to say no way that that can't ride in a budget, uh, budget measure. The rules dictate that um, the only things that can 
that can survive reconciliation are things that affect the budget itself, uh, both in spending or, or taxes or, or things like that. So uh, while this looks and sounds great, I'm, I'm very skeptical that it's going to survive. Uh, and Hunter, I wanted to ask you, I know you're uh, working on a book uh, on Bernie Sanders, uh, right? Now, uh, here's Bernie, head of the Budget Committee, who is saying to his fellow progressives, we ought to get behind this trillion-dollar uh, bill, the infrastructure bill, and the three-and-a-half, even though it's not as big as we wanted. Does this surprise you to see this sort of pragmatic side of Bernie? Not really at all. I mean, you know, Bernie threw out this $6 trillion number. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> right. I think a, a lot of people uh, in the Senate have been pretty clear, we wouldn't be anywhere close to three if you didn't have Bernie agitating for six. And I think, and this is one thing, you know, we're going to be covering in, in the book we're doing, but, but you know, people forget what a long career Bernie's had. I mean, this is a guy who is mayor of Burlington, Vermont, uh, starting in 1981, um, continually when he was in the Senate and also when he was in Vermont, has kind of worked with other people, has, has worked pragmatically in Vermont. I mean, he was focused on very nuts and bolts things in Burlington that, that you know, were not, you know, communism, as, as sort of the brand of him might, might suggest. Um and I think this was a shrewd negotiating tactic from him. And, and you know, it, it, it gets to, I think, technically around $4, four trillion, um, which is a lot higher than the like one point something Joe Manchin wanted. So I think if you really look at this and you see Manchin and Bernie as the main polls within the Democrats on this, Bernie did better than Joe. And it was it was definitely you know, pragmatic negotiating tactics. Today's roundtable with Hunter Walker, uh, Igor Babish, and Eliza Collins uh, here on the Bill Press Pod. A uh, lot more to get to. Let's take a quick break, and then we'll pick up again with our roundtable on the other side. And today's roundtable here on the Bill Press Pod brought to you by the American Federation of Teachers, good men and women of the AFT, our teachers nationwide, hard at work now preparing to get back, back into the classroom. Under the leadership of President Randy Weingarten, they were there on the front lines all during the pandemic, uh, helping families and kids through the online learning, and now helping everybody get back into the in-person classroom. With masks or without masks, we'll see. At any rate, we salute America's teachers, the members of the AFT. Thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. 
CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we're back with uh, today's roundtable. Liza Collins from The Wall Street Journal, Hunter Walker, of his with his new political newsletter, theuprising.info. Uh, I subscribe. Jay Feldman, our producer, subscribes. You should too. And Igor Babish joining us also from HuffPost. So let's go to the hearing, the first hearing of the January 6th Select Committee. Four officers testifying about what they experienced on January 6th, uh, including Officer Michael Fanon. Here's just a clip of Officer Fanon expressing his frustration with some Republican members who refuse, who sort of dismissed what happened on January 6th. The indifference shown to my colleagues is disgraceful. My law enforcement career prepared me to cope with some of the aspects of this experience, but nothing, truly nothing, has prepared me to address those elected members of our government who continue to deny the events of that day. And in doing so, betray their oath of office. Igor, I've never seen such an emotional, a dramatic hearing in all the time I've been watching Congress. Have you? I, I, I haven't. Um, honestly, it was hard for me to watch. I, I struggled to watch it. Um, it you was were astonishing. The, I, because you were right in the middle of it, as we talked before, of course. Yeah, I mean, I was there that day when, you know, the mob came in and, and uh, ran up to the Senate Senate floor and it, it, it brought back a lot of uh, a lot of memories and uh, moments that I, I don't like the hangover but um, seeing them testify there uh, I'm, I'm so glad that they were able to share their experience because of what is going on daily now and all, all these Republicans who are including Trump who are uh, you know coming on the side of the rioters and this whole push, to out this cop who, who shot a rioter, Ashley Babbitt, who tried to, you know, storm the House chamber. It's 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 gross and disgusting. And, um, you know, I, I think it's important that they, they got their story out there um, as, as part of this hearing. Uh, yet what impact did it have, Eliza, do you think? Did it change any Republican votes? You know, I don't know. It's too soon to tell. I think it was an uncomfortable position for Republican lawmakers to be in because, um, you know, they say that they are the party of law enforcement and they blocked the bipartisan commission. And this was clearly not a partisan stunt that they sort of portrayed it to be. Um, but for actual voters on the ground, I'm just not sure how it resonates. I've talked to a lot of Republicans who feel like when Republicans say they're pro-law enforcement, they're talking about their own communities and they're not necessarily thinking of the Capitol and Washington and they're sort of banking on that. I'm just not sure how many people this convinced, but it certainly was an uncomfortable position for Republican lawmakers. Yeah, Hunter. And the Rep so the Republican Party, as several people said, at least House members, right, the majority of them came across as 
anti-police, anti-law and order, pro-terrorist. I mean, Kevin McCarthy, did Kevin McCarthy blow it here? Man, I mean, you know, one thing to point out, uh, Mike Fanone, that um, D.C. police officer uh, who we heard, he's a Republican. (laughs) Right. So, you know, this is being cast by McCarthy as a by as a partisan stunt. Um, But the reality is they're hearing from members of law enforcement about something that objectively happened. And the reality is, as Eliza alluded to, McCarthy's the one who basically stopped a a bipartisan commission. Um, So he is trying to cast this as all politics. I mean, I personally think what they had to say is very powerful, but um, you know, like Igor, I was there that day. And, and you know, it, it's so similar to the masking thing in a way. Like, I can't believe this is a partisan debate. I mean, that day was so shockingly violent and almost could have been so much worse. Um, one thing that I think really came through in the testimony that I know I think about when I flash back to that day is, you know, there were a couple really lucky moments and miracles. Um, One being that Capitol Police officer, Eugene Goodman, leading the folks away that Igor so memorably captured on his phone. Um, And if everything hadn't gone right, you know, we very clearly could have seen a lot more bloodshed on the Capitol that day. And even without that, we saw the American Congress come under attack. And I'm just you know, despite everything that's happened over the past couple of years, I can't believe how many people in D.C. are willing to pretend that didn't happen or that it wasn't serious. I mean, it, it, it you know, this is an objectively shocking thing that that the American society I knew, you know, would have been very hurt by. Right. So, of course, uh, Kevin McCarthy did veto participation in a bipartisan commission uh, like after 9-11. Uh, at which point, uh, Speaker Pelosi appointed this select committee, and she made it bipartisan by appointing two Republican members, including Liz Cheney, who uh, spoke up herself uh, and was based, and was made the ranking Republican member of the select committee. Here's uh, Congresswoman Cheney. The American people deserve the full and open testimony of every person with knowledge of the planning and preparation for January 6th. We must know what happened here at the Capitol. We must also know what happened every minute of that day in the White House. Every phone call, every conversation, every meeting, leading up to, during, and after the attack. Eliza, if it's Kevin McCarthy versus Liz Cheney, I'd have to say Liz Cheney wins this round. Well, I think you and many other Democrats and um, anti-Trump members of the Republican <laughs> Party think so, too. But there is a large faction of the Republican Party who just really does not give much credibility to Liz Cheney. So, yes, the mm-hmm. panel is technically bipartisan, but it is with two Republicans who have been very critical of the Republican Party and their response to January 6th. And so it Really, at this point, it kind of depends what team you're on with who you believe. And to Hunter's point, you know, that is quite a commentary on where we are as a country. But that's the truth. Not everyone is convinced by Liz Cheney, even though this hearing did not have necessarily partisan fireworks. There are certainly many people who will just go on to dismiss it because they say, well, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger are critical of the Republican Party, you know, 
McCarthy's basically started calling them Pelosi Republicans. Right. Uh, Igor, what's next? Where does the committee go next? Well, they've uh, explicitly said that they're um, intending to, or at least they're not foreclosing the option of uh, filing subpoenas and, and trying to get as much information as possible from former Trump officials and, and White House officials. Of course, um, the former president could and is likely to invoke executive privilege over uh, his conversations with White House advisors, and that could go to court. So uh, as far as how much information they're able to, to get out of these members, it's, it's uh, still to be seen. We did see the Department of Justice uh, announced that that former Trump officials can testify willingly if, if they so choose. Um, so I, I think that we're going to see some pretty high profile hearings to come. Uh, Hunter, does that, will that include, do you believe, uh, Kevin McCarthy himself and Jim Jordan? <laughs> well, you know, there's big questions about the communications they had with Trump that day. Uh, but honestly, they're not the members that I am personally most interested in hearing from. I mean, and I am very interested in uh, potentially the role that members played uh, on January 6th. You know, and, and one thing uh, on that, that that has caught my eye is Ali Alexander, uh, this organizer of the quote unquote Stop the Steal uh, mm -hmm. movement and the quote unquote wild protest, which was one of the big pro Trump rallies scheduled at the Capitol that day. He, he is one of the organizers most responsible for propagating the lie and drawing people to the Capitol. He has said that um, I believe it's Paul Gosar, Andy Biggs, and Mo Brooks um, helped him organize that event. Uh, those three have been tied to, uh, you know, the the rallies on January 6th and also the defense of the rioters more than almost anyone else. Um, Mo Brooks, who made that fiery speech that day, just admitted to Jim Newell that he was wearing a bulletproof vest because he was prepared for violence. Um, Biggs and Gosar both spent the day of this hearing in front of the Justice Department, quote unquote, raising questions and standing up for the treatment of uh, prisoners who were arrested in conjunction with the riots. And Gosar, even with this group of pretty extreme members that included Marjorie Taylor Greene, another person who was scheduled to speak at the wild protest, he, as he has repeatedly done, took things a step further and said pretty directly that everyone arrested in conjunction with this is, quote unquote, political prisoners, and they are not quote, unruly or violent. Um, I've pressed his office on that and gotten no answers. But, you know, I think there are real questions about the Republican members who are involved in these rallies, um, particularly as we see them fighting the investigation and outright defending the rioters. And I don't think the, the federal investigation, the criminal investigation, is going to reach the middle and top levels anytime soon. That's sort of what I hear from sources at the DOJ. You know, they're, they're focusing on using social media and other means to figure out just who was in the Capitol. They may go up from there and start to get into organizational questions, you know, uh, ties to people who were in government. But, you know, FBI investigations typically move pretty slowly. And this is an unprecedentedly large one where they're casting a very wide net and starting from the bottom. So, you know, yeah, I, I would love to see member testimony be part of this committee because there's a lot of questions for some of these members that were, you know, friendly with the rioters, if you will. Well, yeah. And uh, just one final point on that. Um, 
and uh, Eliza and Igor, I'd like you both to weigh in on this. I keep coming back to the role of Kevin McCarthy. So as Hunter points out, the very day of the hearing, there were six, five or six members, six, I believe, who were in front of the Department of Justice um, complaining about the treatment that the people that they called political prisoners, those who assaulted the Capitol and and put at risk the lives of every member of the House and the Senate and called to lynch the vice president of the United States. They were complaining that those people, the terrorists, as Officer Hodges called them, are not being treated well enough or being treated too roughly. Or, uh, and then yesterday, three of them, Matt Gates, um, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and Louis Gohmert, went to the D.C. jail to visit these prisoners and offer them, they were not they were denied entry, but they went there to give them some support. So, Eliza and Igor, I keep, why is Kevin McCarthy not just saying, no, this is wrong? We're not on the side of the people who assaulted the Capitol. We're on the side of the law enforcement. Can you explain where Kevin McCarthy's coming from? Uh, my, uh, my reasoning is that he wants to be speaker more than anything else. That's oh, that's yeah. pure pot. That's you know that's that's it. Uh, the one goal for him is to be speaker, and whatever he can do to get there, to get support from these crazy right wing House members, uh, he's going to do. Yeah, exactly. To add on to that, you know, this has been a question about McCarthy for other things as well. We've seen Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates. You know, these members say very controversial things, do very controversial things, and. Um, McCarthy has called him into his office, but he has not done any other sort of punishment. And so there's been a lot of questions about why is he letting some members, Paul Gosar, just sort of run wild. And I think Igor's point, he's made the calculation that he needs the support of his entire party, all members, to become speaker. And that means not angering a faction of his party who's been doing very controversial things. Yeah, And if, if uh, I can just j jump Hunter, in and put a bow on this, right, because I think um, both of you guys are so right that this is all about politics and this is about what a segment of the Republican base wants. And I think that gets back to what Eliza was saying before. I mean, I think you you really broke down the state of our politics quite well, where, you know, it's about for some people, teams more than anything else. And, you know, we're not sitting here debating free markets versus regulation. We're not sitting here debating, you know, spending versus the deficit. We're talking about like basic shocking statements and facts of what happened on a, on, on a in a shocking attack against the country. And it really seems that the Republican Party's stand in politically minding the base is not about any policy position. It's simply about red meat for the base and fealty to Trump. And and that is what we're seeing from a certain wing. Uh, I believe you're right. And how sad that is. All right, let's pick it up with a favorite story of the week. Thank you for looking back at this week, Igor Bobby and <laughs> Eliza Collins and Hunter Walker. Uh, anything caught your attention or what caught, particularly caught your attention uh, this week that you stopped and said, holy shit, look at this. Uh, <laughs> Eliza, start us off. So Congressman Andrew Clyde, who is known for saying that the January 6th insurrectionists oh. looked, appeared like tourists, um, yes. this week CNN reported he basically changed his tax withholding. So he moved all of his pay into withholding. So he just gets a dollar a month. 
that way he can be fined as many times as he wants for not wearing a mask and they can't technically deduct it from his paycheck. So that was pretty wild to me. That was a CNN story. <laughs> Again, uh, as Hunter says, it's very easy just to put on a mask, right? You don't have to go to all this legal shenanigans to try to avoid it. But uh, there you go. Uh, he's not. He's not, certainly not backing down. Igor, what caught your attention? I want to go something lighter. And uh, (laughs) I want to highlight my new favorite Olympic sport. Oh, yes. Which is the, you know, very heartwarming uh, family that's watching at home, watching their loved one win a gold medal. And like there's been several of these viral clips of uh, these very cute families just just going ballistic and, and, you know, cheering and jumping for joy and, uh, just loving the fact that their their loved one won a gold medal. I, if you haven't seen one of these clips, they're amazing. The latest one was, uh, of course, the the, the swimmer uh, in Alaska who won the gold, uh, Jacoby, a 17-year-old mm. from this very small Alaskan town, and to see her family uh, celebrate. I mean, it was just heartwarming and a great, great thing to watch to, to sort of uh, break up the awfulness of everyday life. And the young gymnast, her father built her a wooden... Um, bar to to practice on when she was just like five or six years old, and there she is winning the gold for the United States. Yeah, that whole scene is spectacular. Um, thank you, uh, Igor. How about Hunter? What caught your attention? So this one, this one is also. I'm sorry, Igor. It's not the most fun, but but I think it's important. We 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 keep paying attention to what's going on with the actual White House, um, uh, even though yeah. Joe Biden is is doing his very best to have a fairly um, sedate and uh, under the radar presidency. Um, and there's this story unfolding right now that I really just can't fully understand. We're basically. Um, Around 30,000 prisoners were released from federal prison um, during the pandemic due to you know very contagious con- conditions in the jails. Uh, they were allowed to go on home confinement. Um, of this group, less than 1% has reoffended or violated the conditions of their home confinement. Uh, they were all nonviolent, non-sex offenders. Um, and yet... Uh, five days before Biden took office, the Trump DOJ issued a memo basically saying that when the pandemic state of emergency ended, these people would have to be sent home. Hmm. Um, Biden's DOJ seems to have, in the past couple of weeks, reaffirmed that memo. Um, this really hasn't gotten a ton of coverage, but it means that about 4,000 of these people whose sentences, you know, are, are still ongoing, um, could be sent back to jail after being at home with their families. Um, this has just gotten a little bit of coverage. And, you know, I tried to dive into this this week. I can't honestly tell you exactly what Biden's position is. Uh, the mm. only thing that I've heard from them is that, you know, that initial DOJ interpretation wasn't quote unquote final. Whatever that means, uh, these people are in limbo, and it's going to be, I think, a really interesting thing, uh, particularly as criminal justice reform advocates have cast it as kind of a broken campaign promise, because Biden talked about reducing incarceration, and the federal prison system is actually the only area where he can do this, and he is not doing it in this instance. Uh, I hadn't heard about that. That's a good story, and uh, we have to keep on top of that, keep watching it, uh, Hunter. Uh, My favorite story, Hunter referred to it a little bit earlier maybe uh, all of you 
I didn't catch up on it, but it was the special election out in Texas, uh, Texas 6th Congressional District. Uh, Susan Wright, who's the widow of a congressman who died early in the pandemic, uh, was running in a special election. Uh, it's a very arch-red conservative Texas district, Texas 6, and she was running against a state legislator by the name of Jake Elzey. Uh, Susan Wright was endorsed by Donald Trump. He endorsed her twice. He made a robocall for her. He uh, gave her $100,000 from his PAC. But even with all of Trump's backing, Susan Wright lost the election, at which point Donald Trump said, no, she didn't lose. This is a win. <laughs> because he reasoned, both Susan Wright and Jake Elzey were both Republicans. They, they won the runoff. So a Republican won. Therefore, for Donald Trump, it's still a win. He did not lose this election. Uh, I love the way he reasons. It's sort of like uh, uh, <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't lose in 2020, and Susan Wright did not lose in 2021. He will always be able to define a loss as a win in the world of Donald Trump. Nothing has changed, I guess. Uh, we'll watch that. Another special election is coming up to see uh, what coattails Donald Trump really does have with his endorsements. Uh, but that's it for today's roundtable. Eliza Collins, Wall Street Journal, thank you so much. Igor Babish, HuffPost, thank you, Igor, for coming back again. And Hunter Walker, and we advise you all and encourage you to check out his new political newsletter at theuprising.info. Thank you, panelists. Thank you all for listening. It is hot in Washington. I hope you're staying cool wherever you are, although it looks like most Americans are not are finding it hard to uh, with these climate change temperatures impacting the country. Wherever you're trying to stay cool, stay safe, wear your mask, social distance, take care of yourselves, and come back and see us on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. 